History is about civilizations that have come and gone. It's about the development of humankind and history is about the human stories worth telling. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. I'm Kathy Kayla, actually in for Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Normally this time of the week, he and I will have a conversation. We'll zoom into history. But as you heard on news and as you will know, the funeral for Queen Elizabeth II is currently taking place. Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch is a senior lecturer at the JLE in London, and he has a particular interest in history. So... This is called History for the Curious. Today is the funeral. So what I'm going to do is last week, Rabbi Hirsch and I spoke about the Queen. We spoke about Jews. We spoke about um, royalty and the, the relationship between the three. So um, he also puts out a, po a podcast called History for the Curious. There were things that he didn't mention in our interview last week. And so I'm going to play those two excerpts for you. If you've got any comments, I'd be very interested to know, are you watching the funeral? Okay, well, if you had electricity, would you be watching the funeral? Um, they, they are saying that, this, well, the media are reporting that it is, is the most watched event in world history. Would you say that that's true? Do you think that people all around the world are going to be watching this. I mean, there's a lot of fanfare and pageantry and, you know, protocol. And, uh, I mean, if you think just to the weddings, which were happy celebrations, but uh, so many stories around it. Are you, are you somebody who follows the Queen, doesn't mean anything in your life? How do you feel about it? I'd be so interested to hear from you. And you can get in touch with me. 34519 is the text line. Those SMSs are charged at one rand for 50. Alternatively, you can send me a telegram on 061-895-1019. I'm Kathy Kaler, and as I said, we did speak about the royal family. We spoke about queens, kings, Jews, and our relationships throughout the centuries, but specifically with the, with the, royal, the British royal family. And uh, Rabbi Hirsch is going to join us a little bit later. I'm going to play you a clip from one of his History for the Curious podcasts. That's right after this. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. I'm Kathy Kayla and Rabbi Hirsch will be joining us in a little while. In about 10 minutes from now, he is busy with the, uh, with the funeral. But I wanted to tell you some facts about Queen Elizabeth II and the Jews. So, firstly, did you know that her mother-in-law saved Jews during the Holocaust? Very interesting. So, when World War II broke out, Prince Philip volunteered for the British Navy, and he battled Nazis with distinction, apparently. He stayed in Athens where his mother, Princess Alice, invited the Cohens, which was a Greek-Jewish family with whom she and her husband had been friends. She invited them to hide in her house. Princess Alice was, was taken in for questioning, 
but refused to divulge the fact that she was sheltering Jews. Now, this is in the Holocaust. Isn't that unbelievable? She returned to London in 1967 and died there in 1969. She's remembered amongst the righteous amongst the nations, and she is actually buried in Jerusalem today which I think is uh, incredible, on Mount Zion. Uh, did you know that Queen Elizabeth II, so that was her mother-in-law, uh, Queen Elizabeth II hired a Jewish mohel to circumcise Prince Charles? Perhaps more information than you need about the king. But Queen Elizabeth, he, she hired an Orthodox Jewish mohel to circumcise her son, and his name was Rabbi Jacob Snowman, and he was the London mohel of great renown. I mean, one would think medical. It's so interesting. Um, did you know that uh, British Jews pray for the Queen every Shabbat? So it's a custom around the world to recite a prayer on Shabbat for, if you live in London, well, for any of us, to recite a prayer on Shabbat for our government leaders. And in Britain, it means praying for the welfare of Queen Elizabeth II and her family. British Jews ask God to preserve the Queen in life, guard her, and deliver her from all sorrow. The prayer goes on to ask that the Divine put a spirit of wisdom into her heart and into the hearts of all her counsellors too. That's amazing. Um, did you know that she also, Queen Elizabeth II, departed from royal protocol to listen to Holocaust survivors? I think that's amazing, really. Anyhow... Um, we will be joining Rabbi Hirsch in a little while, or rather he's going to be joining us because he's had to make himself available for the royal funeral. But we're going to be speaking about Queen Elizabeth II, just continuing on our discussion from last week. He has put out a, a podcast about kings, queens, and the Jews, and there were two things, two two important elements that he didn't mention when he did the interview with me last week. So I'm going to play those excerpts for you now. This is from the podcast History for the Curious from Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Maybe they don't remember part four. Well, they might not. So yes, you're really describing the sense of loss that we're all feeling, and she, she left a void in her passing. We all feel that. Yes, but it's noteworthy that she had no close acquaintances or friends in the Jewish community. I mean, did she have any friends? Right. She had almost no friends in general in life because her role almost precluded it. Her only real confidant was her husband. And when he died, basically so did she. You know, there's a very powerful image, I don't know if you've seen it, the photo of his funeral and the queen all alone sitting on a pew in black during COVID, but it's far more than COVID that engendered that sense of loneliness in in that photo. Yeah. I've actually noticed that the article's being written about the Queen and the Jews, which say that's almost nothing. I mean, they talk about her father, her family. But... Exactly. It, it's down to a series of encounters, positive ones. Um, other monarchs in Britain were different. I don't know, Victoria or Queen Elizabeth I, because they held political power and they advised their ministers from a position of authorization rather than suggestion. You know, no Jewish delegation went to speak to Queen Elizabeth II to prevail on her to change her mind about affairs of state. She didn't have that power. It's very different to her ancestors. Her great-grandfather, Edward VII, 
in both of these things, really. In the private circle of Edward VII's life, money was a feature. The king, as prince, had indulged in the good life. He continued to indulge in speculation. And it happened to be that some of the richest in England were Jews. There was Rothschild, the first Jewish peer. There were the Sassoons. There was Sir Ernest Castle, the royal banker, who was a Jew, but he was not only a foreigner, but he had started in life with nothing except for his personality and talent. And it was a relationship of mutual gain between him and the king. He was the last man to call on the dying king with an envelope stuffed with banknotes. So the the king had close friends who were Jews. It was an association that was deplored by the royal family and by fellow monarchs at a time of uh, mounting anti-Semitism in Europe. But what also stands out is that Edward VII used affairs of state to intervene on behalf of Jews before he left to meet with the Tsar in 1908. So the king was asked by Rothschild and others to mention the continued attacks on Jews in Russia, and they begged the king's intervention with the Tsar on behalf of the Jews. And he brought it up with Tsar Nicholas II on the state visit. And the English politicians weren't happy, but for the Jews, Edward was a hero. Now, it's true that the Tsar was his nephew, as was the Kaiser of Germany. It's also true that the Tsar ignored his request because political reality dictated that family ties didn't matter, which caused World War One. But he put himself out there politically for the Jews. And, you know, until today, there is a King Edward VII Jewish memorial drinking fountain in the east end of London. And the plaque on the fountain records that it was built from subscription raised from Jewish inhabitants in the East End, in East London. And there are cherubs around it, one of them holding a ship because so many Jews were recent immigrants. One of them holds a needle and thread because the clothing industry employed most of the Jews in the East End. And one holds a book because of the importance of Jews' place in education. And one is a portrait of the king. But, you know, Queen Elizabeth II never had office of state to wield power, nor possibly as a result, that closeness with individuals. It was almost unimaginable to lose. Yep. I want to steer you to our current king, His Majesty, Charles III. Uh, Charles III. What can you tell us about him? So his full name actually is Charles Philip Arthur George, and he could have chosen any of those four to be known by. He could have been Philip I, uh, but he chose Charles. Um, so perhaps we'll look for a moment at his predecessors, Charles I and II, in order to give us an indication possibly of what Charles III will be like. They have some history between the pair of them, a number of firsts. Charles I ruled at a time where there were no Jews yet allowed back into England. He, in his lifetime, spent heavily on art. He clashed about religion with his nation. He had failed wars in Europe, which led to disagreements with Parliament and eventually an English civil war. He was put on trial for high treason and executed, following which Parliament ruled for 11 years. And Charles II, who was the eldest surviving son of Charles I, spent those years in exile in Holland, where he was helped by, amongst others, Jews there. And during the interregnum, as it's known, 
Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector. This is the only decade in the past thousand years where there's no monarch in England. And Cromwell did not allow festival days, including Christmas, to be celebrated. They were to be spent in respectful contemplation. And when Charles II came back as king in 1660, he brings back theatres and Christmas. So he's seen as the fun king. (laughs) And his restoration was initially feared by the Jewish community because they'd only a couple of years earlier come out into the open and been given the ability to worship unmolested. But the anticipated concerns that the Jews had did not take place. In fact, for more information on that, there's an also a podcast that we've made on political intrigues. And the rights of the Jews were confirmed by Charles II, which was unusual given that at the exact same time, Catholics were being limited. So we hope that Charles III carries on in Charles II's path yes. as the extra fun king. <laughs> we do know one thing. I'm assuming you'll tell me this isn't true, but it's of popular... I wouldn't say belief. People do say it almost as fact that the royal family are circumcised by religious Jew. Absolutely true. Charles III was circumcised by Rabbi Snowman, I think his name was, who was a a rov as well as a moel. It goes back to Queen Victoria. I mean, Edward VII was circumcised as well. Whether it goes back earlier than that, we're not sure. Just by the way, Charles III had a very strong connection to Lord Jonathan Sachs. There's a well-known story of Rabbi Sachs returning from the Rabin funeral on a private jet with Prince Charles and Tony Blair and two or three other politicians. It was just before an election in the UK. And so after a while, Rabbi Sachs leaves the politicians to talk shop and he opens a Chumash and he starts learning. And eventually this group of three or four politicians get drawn into discussion with Rabbi Sachs about Chumash, about scriptures, as they put it. And Prince Charles comes to the back of the plane and he sees what the discussion is about and he takes part in it. And from then on, Prince Charles would call Rabbi Sachs on a regular basis to discuss Chumash. Really? Yes. Wow. Rabbi Sachs spoke of this? Yes. Yes. And one other thing we know, and in fact, I think even Prince Charles spoke about this when Rabbi Sachs passed away. One other thing we do know is that Charles III's image will face to the right on all minted coins, as opposed to Queen Elizabeth, who faced to the left, because tradition dictates that monarchs alternate direction. (laughs) However, since we are talking queens and Jews, I would like to add a fascinating, true, and research story about a queen, but this one of Holland, if you will indulge me. Yes. In 1908, Queen Wilhelmina of Holland was in the resort area of Marienbad in Austria. It wasn't an official state visit, so she only had a small entourage of people with her. She gets off the train and she sees a huge crowd on the platform and she's, you know, curious. And she's told that a great Jewish personality, uh, it was actually the Munkar Chereba, um, had just arrived and many disciples had come to greet him. So she wanted to know, what is a Rebbe? And she's told that a Rebbe is somebody who's a very pious person of great wisdom, who bestows blessings and advice to his followers. And the Queen is fascinated. She was the only surviving child of King William III. Her three brothers had all predeceased her. She's already been married for eight years and was childless. And that would have brought the Dutch royal family to an end. 
So she's the end of the, the last heir to the throne. So she asks one of her attendants to try and arrange for her to meet the Rebbe privately. So he gets hold, she or he or she gets hold of the, the Rebbe's gabai, and word comes back that evening that the Rebbe will see her. So the next day, uh, Munkat Rebbe goes to a large park just outside the city, and the queen is accompanied by two attendants, and the Rebbe comes with two bochrim. And she spoke openly to the Rebbe about her anxiety of not having a child to carry on the monarchy. And the Rebbe listens and tells her not to worry, that her monarchy would continue. And he used the expression, at this time next year, the same words that Hashem uses to tell Avram Avinu that in a year his wife Sarah would have a child. How old was she at the time? Well, she was already the queen in 18... Um, she was not that old. She was in her... must have been in her late 20s. The next year, 1909, the queen has a little girl, her only child, and she names her Juliana. Um, and 39 years later, in fact, in 1948, Juliana became the queen of Netherlands, and then her daughter Beatrix became queen after her. And um, that's the end of that part of the story, but it continues. Rav Yaakov Tzvi Katz was a Talmud Chochem who served as a rabbi in a Hungarian town near Debrecen. During the war, he ends up in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, and all his writings were taken from him, and he survives the ordeal of the camps, and he wants to rebuild his life. He goes back to Hungary and he realizes there's no f real future there for the Jews. So he tries to emigrate to Holland. But his visa application was rejected because there was a quota. He applies a second time and he's told that Holland is only accepting those whose presence would benefit the country. And there were already enough rabbis in Holland. So, you know, applications turned down again. So Rabbi Katz decides to write directly to the Queen. And he explains the hardships that he had gone through through the war and his longing to live in Holland. And then he writes as follows. Your Highness remembers the momentous meeting that preserved the course of royalty in Holland. And he talks about the Queen's encounter in Marienbad with the great sage and scholar. And he said, you will no doubt remember that the Rebbe had brought two boys along especially since they would need an interpreter because the queen would be speaking in German. And Rabbi Katz writes, I was the 18-year-old boy who transmitted to your majesty the queen the wonderful news from the saintly rabbi that you would have a child within the year. I therefore plead with your highness in recognition of my humble service to grant me the favor of emigrating to your country. The letter he writes in Yiddish. And his son explained that uh, the father didn't want it written in German because then, you know, the Queen's secretary or whoever is going to uh, read it and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, bin it. But if it's written in a language that no one can understand, then it would pique their curiosity. So they bring an old Russian chazan called uh, Rabinowitz to translate it. He reads through the letter and realizes its significance. So he puts, you know, as much fervor as he could into it. But he was actually in front of Juliana, the daughter who had been born from this blessing, from this bracha. She hears the story and she goes to the, her mother, the queen, and says, is this true? She didn't know anything about it. And the queen says, yes, and I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> 
And the Queen at that moment made it her personal agenda to see that he be granted immigration. And Rabbi Katz mentions the kindness of the royal family in the foreword to the first of the Svarim that he prints after the war, that Hashem guided my footsteps to Amsterdam through the personal intervention of Queen Wilhelmina. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. I'm Kathy Kaler and uh, Rabbi Hirsch joins us now. By the way, if you were listening earlier, I did play you two clips that comes from Rabbi Hirsch's podcast that he puts out called History for the Curious. And he has done one about kings, queens and Jews. And um, there were two things that he didn't mention when he spoke to me last week about it. And so we have played you those clips and I hope that you enjoyed it. If you've got any questions, you're welcome to send them through on either text uh, to SMS or text to Telegram and they will come through to studio. You can also make comments on the HIFM Facebook page. So if you want to send us an SMS, the number is 34519 with any questions that you have. You can also send a Telegram, a text or a voice note. And that number is 061 Eight nine five, and say it with me one zero one nine. There you have it. Morning, Rabbi Hirsch. How are you? Good morning. Yes, I'm uh, coming into the studio, so to speak, from having um, spoken already twice today on the day of the funeral about the funeral and about uh, Queen Elizabeth and about her son, the. Uh, future king who not yet been crowned but has been named uh, Charles III and it is a particularly historic day in this country and it is um, it's bittersweet uh, obviously the the country is saying goodbye to a monarch who reigned for 70 years and bear in mind that it was only a few months ago that we celebrated those 70 years on the throne across the country there were garden parties there was an outpouring of emotion i don't know if you saw the clip with paddington bear uh, but if you haven't you really have to it is a clip of paddington bear and the queen talking about um, her reign uh, with a marmalade sandwich, of course, because it's Paddington, uh, but it, it has had millions of views. It is so poignant now uh, that she is no longer with us. Um, and so, you know, those celebrations add a sense to the loss uh, that the country is feeling. I'm not sure that the British royal family will ever see that level of, you know, there's always been a separation between monarchy and society. You know, they are mm -hmm. very much yeah. in your, in their ivory towers. With the new royals, even with Charles, we already know what he thinks about things. <coughs> we already know where he comes from. It's not the same sort of reserved approach yeah. as there yes. was with Queen Elizabeth II. You know, there's one, there's a case to be made for royalty being more accessible. But at the same time, right. it's what keeps there's, there's the whole air. Yeah, you pay a price for accessibility, and that is you don't have that sense of awe of being on a pedestal because they are more accessible. It, it, you know, it, it is not easy to know which way to go and how to navigate. Yeah, and yet with somebody like Diana, uh, the late Diana, although she was accessible, 
society still kept her on a pedestal. But I think they really kept her on her pedestal uh, because of who she was married to. Yeah. And she was sort of the fairy tale come true. The, 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 the common person who's become the princess and, so to speak, soon to, soon to be queen. It was more that element of it rather than she herself, who was seen as uh, somebody who won the country's affection rather than reverence. What's, what's the temperature? What is the social temperature in the UK today? What's the feeling? So everything's closed. Uh, all the shops are closed and it, there's been no discussion about it. It doesn't matter how Republican a person would feel. The sense of respect that is owed to the Queen is palpable um, and it will remain so. I would imagine that almost the entire country will tune in uh, to watch the, the funeral, which starts in, in about a half an hour's time. And um, it will be a, a sending off with the pomp and ceremony for which uh, you know England uh, is quite known. And the, the queues, you know, the, the tens of thousands of people, I, friends of mine were part of those queues. Uh, uh, two went on uh, Wednesday night. They started the queue at midnight um, and it took them eight hours. That really is a sense of the acknowledgement of her as having been their queen. And, and it is so interesting um, for the Jews in this country who are on the threshold of Rosh Hashanah of the new year, where the central feature is uh, bringing the king into our lives as the monarch, as the ruler, as the melech, that use the Hebrew term. It, we don't do so by standing and declaring long live the king. It is really an acceptance, an awareness, an understanding. And the truth is that is exactly what all these people who queued up through the night did. When they got to stand in front of her coffin, they didn't do anything. They didn't say anything. It was simply an acknowledgement of who she had been, of who she was, and of the monarchy as a whole. And that really is the mood in, in the country. Just a question. Was the coffin open or closed? Closed. Okay. Closed with the um, with the crown on top of it. Okay. All right. I understand. Because when Nelson Mandela passed away, you could actually see his face, which is quite unnerving, especially from a Jewish perspective, because right. we don't look upon a dead body. Um, right. Right. It, it's quite yeah. jarring to think of, of that. It's a... You know, I understand that for finality or closure, sometimes that's important. But as Jews, we don't we don't look Correct. upon a dead body, dead body. Would you like to talk to that a bit? So, so the truth is that uh, around the world is often been the case. Uh, if you think about, I don't know, Stalin, or you think about world leaders um, in the in the twentieth century, uh, lying in state was either literally an open coffin or a glass-topped one. And as you say, from a Jewish perspective, um, that would not be something that uh, we would look towards or in any way encourage. Here, 
it is a function of the majesty and the monarchy that you looked upon the concept rather than the person, because uh, the queen was part of something larger than herself, and that is a thousand years of, of monarchy. And, and in fact, honor is to be seen in that which is veiled rather than that which is open. And in fact, in a synagogue, we give reference to that. The ark has a curtain in front of it. And the reason we have that curtain, the, the verse that uh, describes that is Kvod Hashem Hester Davar. The way to honor God is by having something which is hidden because you don't reveal everything. There is this sense of majesty, of awe, of distance. Of majesty. Let's talk about the funeral. Thank you for that. So, right. So the, the funeral will be made up both of elements um, that are religious and those that are state. It's interesting. You'd have to go back to um, 1954 for this. But if we go back, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II is accompanied by so many verses from the Jewish Bible, from the Tanakh, from our scriptures. Her very um, authority as a monarch in monarchy is actually ascribed to the monarchy of King David during the coronation. Hmm. So, you know, there's a, a bedrock of uh, Jewish history which seems to be at the foundation of monarchy from that moment on, which is quite uh, quite noteworthy. Well, I think uh, a lot of people know about Psalms, right? And I think yes. that that's quite, yeah. it's become quite universal. But the fact, I, I, I don't know, anecdotally, I don't know how many people know that the Psalms were written, well, the majority of the Psalms were written by King David. You know, some were written by Moses, some were, were written by Adam. But, um, Correct. But... I don't know how many people know that the source for all the Psalms are Jewish. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. It's, it's something, I mean, the, the particular ones, for instance, chosen at her coronation, not only uh, reflect the authorship of uh, King David, but they were a prayer for Jerusalem. Um, so it, it, it is doubly related to Jewish history as such and quite interesting to see in context, as you say, of understanding that the Psalms are of Jewish authorship themselves. So significant, so significant. All right, so, so uh, tell us a little bit more. So I, I am sure that there will be uh, statements and fragments of the service uh, that will um, make mention of uh, Tanakh, of the, of the Jewish scriptures, of course, this is a Protestant country, not a Catholic country, which itself is something that harks back to monarchy, because King Henry VIII, wishing to marry a second wife, he was married to Catherine of Aragon, and he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, so he wanted his first marriage annulled, and the Pope wouldn't play ball. 
So in order to get out of the um, marriage, since he saw himself as a religious Christian, he couldn't carry on and marry a second wife. He couldn't be a bigamist. He needed to annul the marriage. The only way forward was to change the whole church. And that... Which I suppose you can do if you're a king. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and in fact, in doing so, not only did he change the religion of the country, but from that moment on, the monarch became the head of the church. So the queen was the head of the Church of England, and it's the function that Charles III now plays. What's interesting is that in order for Henry VIII to carry this out, um, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, had been originally married to his brother, who had died. And in the Torah, in um, the Jewish Bible, there is a concept, I'm not going to go into all the technical details, of uh, a woman being married to somebody who dies, and she then marries the brother. It's a biblical um, injunction called Yibum. And he, King Henry VIII wanted advice as to whether the Jews can get him out of his predicament. Did they give him a shoe? Did they give him a well, shoe? Yeah. So what they well, of course, there are no Jews in the country at the time because this is in the 1520. So he gets hold of Jews in Italy. It's why two entire sets of Talmud end up in England during the reign of Henry VIII because he has them brought over and he has some scholars pour over them and he's looking for a way out of his marriage. So even in a country where at the time no Jews had been readmitted from 1290 to 1655, there are no Jews here, uh, but nevertheless the Jews feature in the creation of the Church of England of, uh, and of the fact that the monarch um, is the head of the church. So, uh, you know, there very much is a connection there um, however um, little it will be overtly featured in today's funeral, um, it harks back to the 16th century and to a, a, a Jewish element. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, look, it didn't end up well for Henry, Henry VIII's wives. I mean, he did have six of them following um, yes. Anne Boleyn. Yeah. Yes, although it has to be said, his, um, his, one of his daughters, Elizabeth I, um, who is the daughter of Anne Boleyn, was somebody who was a survivor because she was declared illegitimate at one stage, she was imprisoned at one stage. Um, her older sister, Mary, was Catholic and Elizabeth was Protestant, so she didn't have uh, an easy ride before she became the Queen. But she was in situ for 45 years. She was the Queen from 1558 to 1603. Mm. And during that time, she had a Jewish physician. Her personal physician was a Jew. Once again, at a time where Jews were not allowed in the country. So he was a Murano. He was a hidden Jew. Uh, he was nominally a Protestant. He was married to somebody who was nominally a Protestant and was a Jew and was known within uh, the corridors of power as being a Jew, a person by the name of Roy Lopez. And um, he was her personal physician for 13 years. You know, it, the story continues all the way through. Yeah, and as they say, as Monty Python says, you'll never be a success on Broadway unless you ha if you don't have any Jews, apparently. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. Can we talk right. about Rosh Hashanah? 
because that is next week. We're not going to be on air next week because being a a Jewish holy day, we do not broadcast on Rosh Hashanah, which is our new year. Now, just a little bit of context. When we have our new year, it's not like the secular new year where everybody gets drunk and has a party and parties and balloons and champagne. It's a very sober event where we actually focus on where we were a year ago. We take stock and we put to God what we want for the next year. That could be in terms of our health. That could be in terms of our livelihood, in terms of our family, in terms of our relationships. There's another element that comes into it is that, you know, if you're standing in in the synagogue and you're praying for God to give you good health, you have to meet him halfway. And that's part of the process. So uh, let's look a little bit at the history, because this is a history show, Rabbi Hirsch. Let's talk about the history of Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so uh, uh, since we don't have time to deal with it on, on, on this show, but it's uh, timely because of the reference, uh, I will advise listeners uh, to listen to a particular podcast uh, on political intrigues, which is about England, because there it puts together the story of Charles II and the king who readmitted the Jews, as well as the first time there was a Rosh Hashanah prayer, a minyan, a uh, almost, so to speak, a synagogue in England from the time of the expulsion. So from 1290 to 1655, for 365 years, no group of Jews had ever prayed openly in England because they were forbidden residents. That changed on Rosh Hashanah of September 1655. But for that, I would say you've got to listen to the History for the Curious podcast. No, you can't do that. No, 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 no. I'm going to talk about a different Rosh Hashanah, which is equally astonishing. Um, And since this one is not in a podcast, the other one can be heard in people's spare time. This one took place in September of 1654, one year earlier. There was a ship called the St. Caterina, which docked at a small harbour off the Atlantic Ocean. 23 Sephardic Jews disembarked from this ship to begin life in a new town in a new country, in fact, a country which did not have any Jews. But the outcome of the docking of this ship in September 1654 was totally unforeseen because they were docking at a place that was known at the time as New Amsterdam, which would be known to us as New York. That's incredible. And two weeks later, these 23 Jews held a Rosh Hashanah prayer service in New York. So in a country where there are now um, north of five and a half million Jews, it all starts just before Rosh Hashanah of September 1654, 
with 23 Jews. Now, what are they doing there? They had come all the way from Recife, the west coast of Brazil, because in the 16th century, um, that area had become a Portuguese colony and therefore fell under the rule of the Inquisition. Inquisition starts in Spain. Four years later, in 1496, it spreads to Portugal. And as a result, all of the dependencies, all of the colonies in the Americas, in Central and South America, all have the same rule of the Jews not being able to live there as Jews. However, in 1630, Recife, was conquered by the Dutch, and they allowed these hidden Jews to now practice their religion openly. And in 1636, the Jews in Recife founded a community and a synagogue called Kahal Kadosh Tzur Yisrael on Drew Street. The Drew Street still exists in Recife in Brazil. It is the first Jewish community in all of the Americas, North and South, that's in 1636, mm. 18 years later, the Portuguese attacked Recife and reconquered it. And therefore, the Jews fled. They went north in three ships. One ended up in Barbados. And that community dates back from this time. One of them docked possibly in Europe, and the third made its way further north to New Amsterdam. And initially, the governor, the governor general of New Amsterdam, um, Stuyvesant, Saint, after whom the cigarettes uh, are named. Mm, Peter Stuyvesant. He was a big yes, anti-Semite. Correct. And he did not want to allow the Jews passage or entry. And he wrote back to the Netherlands and they, um, being convinced by Jews within the Dutch community who had only been allowed to live openly as Jews uh, in the last half century prior, they convinced the Dutch government to um, be uh, willing to accommodate these new Jews. And they therefore ended up as the beginnings of all of Judaism that we are now aware of in North America. So a very auspicious moment and a very auspicious date. Amazing. No one. Um, there's a message, a question coming through from Gail, who says, mm -hmm. good morning, Rabbi. Is there a reason why Henry VIII's help, no, Henry VI's help, the VIII, no, Henry VIII's help from the Jewish community is never mentioned? So in the end, it didn't amount to what he wanted it to. He wanted them to somehow give him a dispensation based on the fact that he was marrying the widow of his brother, that somehow the marriage could be annulled. But actually, once that marriage is contracted into in Jewish law, it has all the same laws as any marriage contracted. And therefore, they were unable to be of help for him, uh, even though the beginnings of the marriage could have been said to have taken place under slightly different auspices. So, so interesting. Yeah. We actually had a we had a, a ceremony here a few years ago, and there's a special shoe 
that the woman has to tie. So it's called a chalitza, a chalitza shul, that's you know? That's if they're not going to contract into marriage. So why there couldn't he do that? Options. So there are two options that the brother-in-law has at the moment that his brother has died. He can either marry the widow or he can carry out this whole ceremony, which you correctly described with the shoe called Chalitza. But if he does that, they do not contract any type of marriage whatsoever. And she is free to then marry whoever she likes. But there was never a marriage. The problem with Henry VIII, so to speak, is that he had married the widow. And at that point, ah, all the bets are off. There you can we only go. Do in place of marriage, not post-marriage. Yeah, well, after that, he, he turned to, didn't he behead all of his wives? Um, so there am I, is Am I mixing a, up the Henrys? A rhyme. It's survived, beheaded. Uh, it's died, beheaded, survived, beheaded, divorced, died. Something like that. Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> Catherine of Aragon died. Anne <laughs> of Berlin was beheaded. Um, so those two who gave birth, one to Mary and one to Elizabeth, uh, came to an end during his reign. But uh, yes, he had—he um, was not the easiest of people, shall we say. Yes, it sounds like a walk Fair. in the park. Rabbi, we have to wrap up, but I would like to take this opportunity to wish you a Shana Tova uh, to Thank you, you to your much. family, to your community. And we will catch up after the Chagim. Yes. So, and as I say, if you want to hear the whole story about Charles II and the readmission of the Jews into England, which led to a 350-year period of relative peace for the Jews, so you have to hear the podcast of History for the Curious on political intrigues, the one about England. Thank you so much. Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, he's from the JLE. He's a senior lecturer at the JLE in London. And uh, he joins us every week to talk about history for the curious and taking, you know, zooming in to specific times, to specific stories. And to you, I wish you a Shana Tova. Thank you so much for joining us. And I wish you a wonderful week. We will be back after the Chagim. Don't eat too much. And remember to meet God halfway for whatever it is you're asking for. God bless. Bye.